You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org. Uh, so yeah, we're doing this series, Rethinking the Bible, just trying to, um, to really take seriously this book, which is so influential and so important. Um, and we believe that taking it seriously means thinking about it critically, uh, trying to allow it to speak on its own terms rather than the, in the ways that we think it should speak to us or uh, that it's simply repeating the things that we've heard many times before. So we're trying to take it seriously uh, in that sense. So I guess that one of the reasons that uh, we turn to the Bible uh, is for guidance, isn't it? Guidance on how we make sense of the world that we live in and how we should live our lives uh, in, in, the, in that context. Uh, and that can range quite significantly from thinking about the, the big issues of the day or stories that we hear on the news to the very personal sort of day-to-day decision-making that we're involved in. Uh, and I think it makes sense to think of this uh, on a kind of a spectrum. So at one end, we've got what you might call social ethics, uh, the big issues, the big stories. And right at the other end, we've got those personal choices and decisions that we need to make. So It's a spectrum that ranges from probably something which is more theoretical to that which is practical, uh, from the distant to the immediate. And so the issues that we're thinking about will will come somewhere um, on that spectrum. So, as I say, social ethics, I can't say ethics, social ethics uh, are the big issues. Um, And one of the stories that um, someone sort of brought to my attention uh, this week, you may have seen uh, about this, just almost taken at random, the story of the the guy who was involved in the Parkland shooting in the States, the highest use, uh, the deadliest US high school massacre, and and the story about how he was sentenced to life imprisonment, and the reaction to that from some of the families who felt that he should have had the death penalty um, because of what he did. So that's one of those issues, doesn't I suspect, affect us directly, but it might be something that really impacts us. We want to think about it. We want to try and understand how, how should we think about this? What, what would we do if we were in that situation? What do we think should have happened? So there are those kind of issues that we might sort of label under this, uh, at that one end of the spectrum, uh, as sort of social ethics. But then at the other end, as I say, we've got those personal decision-making things, those day-to-day things that we, that we need to get our heads around. And they could be things which feel to us to be moral issues, or it could be very practical stuff like, should I accept this job offer that I've just received? Should I pursue this relationship that I've just started? All that sort of stuff. Uh, And we may may want to look to the Bible to kind of help us. Um, And as I say, I think the way that we use the Bible will depend what sort of questions we're asking, where we are on this spectrum. Is it a kind of a big issue thing that we're trying to get heads around or is it about something very specific to my life where I want to get a sense of what God might be saying to me about this situation? Uh, And so where we are and the sort of questions we're asking would depend on that. And so we use this word ethics uh, to describe those questions that we ask uh, and the answers that we arrive at. That's what we mean really when we talk about ethics. Um, and so whether that's at the theoretical level or right down to those very personal details of our lives, we use this kind of broad term. And broadly speaking, there are four different ways that we can approach this, whether it's the big questions or, or the, the kind of more personal things. 
So approaches to ethics. I keep wanting to... You know that ethics is next to Suffolk, don't you, in the country? Um, anyway, ethics. I thought it was fine, but anyway. Uh, approaches to this particular topic, which we are looking at this morning. First... So there's going to be some big words here, which um, I won't apologise for because I'll put the, there'll be a little bit of explanation and you don't need to remember the words, but um, it's kind of a useful heading. So there's a thing called deontology. Ontology is about the essence of things. It comes from Greek and it's talking about the essence, the, the substance of things. So this is what you might call a rule-based ethics, where uh, an action is either right or wrong, always. So it's that kind of approach that says, what's the right thing to do here? Um, and if it's right in this situation, it's right in that situation. If it's wrong in this situation, it's also wrong over there as well. So it's that kind of approach that things are essentially in, them, in and of themselves, either right or wrong or somewhere, perhaps as a, a grey area, but it's that kind of approach. Then uh, something called utilitarianism, associated with a philosopher called John Stuart Mill. We should seek the greatest good for the greatest number of people. So much more pragmatic approach to things. And then similarly, but different, I think, is what's called teleology, which is all about looking at the end. What's the end game? What's the long, the long sort of view of this? It's about the ends justifying the means, which is another kind of familiar approach. And then there's something called uh, situation ethics, which is all about looking at the particular context and saying, well, what's the loving thing to do in this context? So in a sense, it's completely different from the deontology thing, which says, well, things are always right or always wrong, to saying, actually, it's all about the context. What's the right thing to do here? What's the loving thing to do in this context? So the first and the last of those could be seen, actually, as more idealistic, because they're grappling with the nature of the action itself. What is it about this thing that's either good or bad? And the middle two are more pragmatic because it's looking at the outcome. It's saying, well, let's not think about the action itself, but let's think about the outcome because, you know, that's, that's the thing that counts, isn't it? What, what, what results from this? So we've got, as I say, the first, the first and the last are a bit more idealistic. The middle two are a bit more pragmatic. And the reason for sort of outlining that is really not to get you to try and remember all this stuff, but just to flag up the point that all of us will probably relate to one or other of those approaches. We'll tend to approach things in one of those ways. And quite often the disagreements that we have around these sort of ethical issues are actually because we approach things in a different way. We're looking for different things. So sometimes in these sort of conversations and discussions, it can be a bit of a dialogue of the deaf because we're we're talking in different terms. We're looking for different things. So even if you don't remember any of those headings, perhaps you can kind of remember that, that point, that actually when we're talking about um, these big issues or the small issues of our lives, which can be big for us, obviously, that it may well be that we're approaching things in a quite different way. One of us might want to know what the rules are. Someone else might be saying it's all about the context. Some of us are much more pragmatic about how we, how we go forward, looking at the outcome rather than the essence of the thing. So what do we find when we look at the Bible? So part of the idea of this morning is to sort of look at, say, well, what do we find when, when we look at the Bible? How does the Bible encourage us to think about these issues and to approach things? 
Well, we can certainly find lots of examples of the first of these, rule-based ethics. It's been said uh, a number of times over recent weeks that the Bible isn't a rule book um, and that we shouldn't treat the Bible as a rule book. But the reason that we say that is because there are lots of rules in the Bible. It's, they're hard to avoid. That's why we, we tend to naturally want to read it in that way because particularly depending on where you sort of dip into it, there are lots of rules. Um, and it's not just in the Old Testament. It's not just the book of Leviticus. Uh, Paul was often laying down uh, very clear instructions about how things should be. Uh, and even in the G- teaching of Jesus, we find that approach as well. Jesus said to his disciples, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So it's there. It kind of threads through the Bible. So we can't just kind of dismiss this approach and say, well, we don't like that. Or It's not the same as reading the Bible as a book of rules, but we have to reckon with the fact that this way of approaching things is there. And rule-based ethics has, has the virtue, at least superficially, I think, of being clear and specific. You know, if there are rules, then everybody knows that's the rule. Um, and it, and they, it's an approach that can be really useful in, in holding together or forming new or fragile communities. And that's actually what we find. So if we go back into the book of Leviticus, say, um, the context there is of a community just trying to establish itself in a, in a new land. They've just entered the Canaan, uh, having uh, come out of Egypt, Uh, It's a fragile community, and rule-based approach is a really helpful way of just setting out some boundaries and saying, well, this is who we are, and this is is what we do, this is what we don't do, let's get those foundations laid. And we find the same thing in the New Testament in the letters of Paul. The context is the same. Paul is writing to very fragile, fledgling communities. And again, it's important in that context to set down some some rules, to lay those foundations, to, to set boundaries around things because that's the nature of the context. So rules are useful in that way. But the clarity that they bring is often superficial, because before long, uh, some smart aleck will ask, what exactly do you mean by keeping the Sabbath holy? And so the rules proliferate, because we want to try and explain, well, what, what exactly do we mean by that? And so that's what tends to happen. And so your basic list of rules begins to expand, And the more specific the rules are, the less transferable they are. So if you want uh, an exercise for a rainy afternoon, just read through the book of Leviticus and write down how many of those rules are directly relevant to our life today. They're not most of them, are they? Because our context is so different. So the more specific the rules are, the less transferable they are. And more seriously, one of the issues with a rule-based approach is that it's a, really, it's a really useful way of managing behaviour and, and con- controlling uh, destructive impulses. But on their own, rules don't touch our hearts. They don't change us. They don't affect who we are. They're a way of managing things. They don't build character. They don't instill wisdom and re- resilience. And that's what Jesus addressed time and time again, isn't it, in, in his disputes with the scribes and the Pharisees. Time and again, Jesus is saying, well, what about the heart? What sort of people are we? Not how well are we obeying the rules, but what sort of people are we? And so rules on their own don't don't do that. They don't help us in that way. So they're useful in those kind of initial stages of a community forming, perhaps. But there's a sense, I think, and I think we see this in the Gospels, 
of a moving on from that into something which is about, about character and about who we are as people and not just managing our behaviour. So this, this approach is there, but it needs to be seen in context. And again, context is so important, isn't it, when we read the Bible. What about utilitarianism? Well, it seems to me I don't think we see much of this in the Bible, this idea that we look for the greatest good for the greatest number of people. The only thing that immediately came to mind is the, the, are the words of the high priest at the trial of Jesus, where he says it's better for one man to die for the good of the people. That's a utilitarian approach, but not one that we would uh, want to endorse, is it? And generally speaking, it seems to me that in the Bible, what we find is a concern for minorities, for those who wouldn't be considered to be among the greatest number. The Bible is concerned for those who have no voice, for those who are marginalised and weak, because uh, they don't belong to the greatest number. So I'm not sure that we can see this there uh, very strongly. And one of the main problems, I think, with this approach is that, again, it comes down to defining terms. What do we mean by good? How do we define good? And are we thinking, uh, and what sort of time frame are we thinking about? Something which may seem good in the short term may, in the long term, not be so helpful. All the debates and discussion about the economy and, and, and the issue of debt falls into this category. And there are some things that we might do which might seem immediately to solve some problems, but are they creating more problems further down the line? So this kind of approach has its limitations. What about teleology? The ends justify the means. Well, I think we see more of this in the Bible. In fact, you could argue, I think, that the whole of the Old Testament law really works on this basis. So if you take, for example, the idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in the Old Testament, that's not so much about vengeance or retribution as it is about preventing blood feuds developing down through generations. It's a very pragmatic thing. It's a practical response to that potential problem. And if you read in uh, 1 Corinthians 7, I think it is, or Romans 7, no, 1 Corinthians 7, I think, um, where Paul talks about marriage. So uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, Paul suggests that those who, um, that men who struggle to control their sexual impulses should get married, which is hardly a glowing recommendation for the institution of marriage, is it? It's a very pragmatic thing. The end, which is sexual purity, justified the means, which is getting married. Paul actually says, I think it'd be better if none of us got married because we'd be free to do all sorts of things, which in itself is interesting, isn't it, given how, how we kind of elevate marriage uh, so much. Uh, but it's a pragmatic approach. It's an it's a ends justifying the means kind of approach. And it's important to recognise, isn't it, that we do live in the real world. Um, and we need to, sometimes pragmatism has to inform our decision making. Uh, and it seems to me that that's part of life. But, but there are always these questions about how, how far does that go? Is there a point at which there is a line to be drawn? Is it okay to supply arms to Ukraine in their war against Russia? We may feel clearly about that. Is it, should we form political alliances with dodgy, dodgy regimes? Or just in our own lives, should we just go along with what's happening rather than rocking the boat? If there's some practice at work that we feel is dishonest, should we say something about that and perhaps put at risk the jobs of other people? So 
there are, there are issues around a pragmatic approach. How far does it go before we, we reach that point where we say, actually, there's a moral point here, there's a stand here that maybe needs to be, maybe needs to be taken. And then finally, situation ethics. What is a loving thing to do in a given situation? And I think this is, this is what we find perhaps most strongly in the Bible, and especially in, in the life and the ministry of Jesus. When Jesus was asked to sum up what God requires of his people, he, his answer was love, wasn't it? Love for God, love for neighbour, and for ourselves. Uh, and time again and again, we see Jesus rejecting that sort of pragmatic approach because he dealt with the person in front of him. He wasn't interested in what the rules were. He was interested in who this person was in front of him. What does love look like for this person? And again, Paul uses very similar language in Romans 13 when he talks about love being the fulfillment of the law. So it seems like a no-brainer, perhaps. You might think, well, surely then that's the way we should go. That's, that's the sort of approach that we should adopt that's how Jesus operated, so should we. That whole thing, what would Jesus do? It's a cliche now, isn't it? But it's a good question. Trouble is, it's not very straightforward answering that question, is it? It's not always easy to figure out what that answer might be. And I think sometimes there's always a danger that we need to be aware of, of remaking Jesus in our own image, of hearing him say what we want him to hear. So if you think about the story of uh, the woman caught in adultery that's recorded in John chapter 8, uh, at the end of that, that, uh, that story, that incident, uh, Jesus says two things to the woman. And I wonder what it is that we want to hear him say. What is it that jumps out of us? He says to her, neither do I condemn you. But then he says, go and sin no more. What do we want to hear Jesus say in that situation? Do we want to hear those words of acceptance? Or do we think, no, Jesus should be telling her, go and sin no more. So we can hear that that just that, that simple phrase, we can read that, hear that in quite different ways. And so there is always that danger that we, that we remake Jesus in our image. We hear him saying the things we want him to say. So it's not straightforward. And figuring out what love looks like. It's a slippery concept, isn't it, sometimes? So how might we pull all of this together? So Here's some thoughts, biblical guidelines. I'm, I, I'm wary of this word biblical because it usually is a way of saying what I'm about to tell you is absolutely true, always and ever, because it's biblical. And we can use that word in a very power, uh, unhelpful way. But I'm using it. Biblical guidelines. This is what I think we find in the Bible, but you may disagree. Uh, so the first thing, uh, ethics is rooted in the nature and character of God. So it's not just about what we do, but it's about who we are. Uh, the nature and character of God revealed supremely in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. That phrase, be holy for I am holy, is not just saying, don't do bad things because I don't do bad things. It's saying, be like me. Your life should be a reflection of my character and my nature. Uh, and so that's the deepest level in which, in which we need to grapple with these things. The sort of people we are. Who are we? What, how, do we? how do we treat other people? What we find in the Bible, what we see in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus is a God of justice, a God who is concerned for the weak and the powerless. Is that reflected in our lives? So that's, that's, the, that's the kind of the ground level, if you like, the, the bottom line for us. Ethics rooted in the nature of character of God, which we're called to express in our lives. 
The second thing is that ethics flows out of the whole biblical story. Again, focused on Jesus. And with a sense of that story's direction, and I keep saying this, but I really do think it's important that we have a sense of the story the Bible tells. Not in a kind of artificial way of trying to join up all the dots, but a sense of a story which is going somewhere. And I, I really like the idea of the, book, of the Bible as a library, but that can seem like quite a static thing. And I think there is a story which flows and there is a direction. And that story is continuing. And so we're moving forward as a kind of a continuation of that story. It's not a static thing that we have to try and sort of fit our lives into. Um, and so we need to have that sort of sense of the whole picture uh, and the direction in which things are going. Again, focus culminating in, in the person of Jesus it has to be the touchstone for everything that we try and understand. Or if you want to put it another way, we could say that theology and ethics belong together. When you read Paul's letters, often they begin with theology and then they go into the practical outworkings of that. Ephesians is the clearest book that does that. Ephesians 4 verse 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, live lives which are worthy of the calling that you've received. He's outlined God's mercy, and then he says, now live it out. So it belongs together. We, can't, we, we shouldn't be trying to separate out those things. Our understanding of who God is and the story that the Bible tells should shape the way that we live our lives and the decisions that we make. The third thing which I think is important is that the New Testament proclaims freedom from law, that rule-based ethics. I think that's clear in what Paul says particularly. But there is also an obligation there to deeper principles. In other words, it's not a free-for-all. It's not that we just make it up as we go along and we do whatever we feel we want to. What the Bible does and what Jesus does in his teachings, he takes us deeper, isn't he? He says, again, it's the issues of the heart. What sort of people are we? What are the principles that we're seeking to live our lives by? And we're called to be devoted to those things, not to take it or leave it. So there is this almost a paradox within the New Testament of this freedom, but also at the same time, this deep obligation, this sense of calling that we are called to live in a certain way and to be certain sort of people. And again, important, I think, we rely on the Spirit's help in all of this, Jesus promised that the Spirit would lead us into truth to help us grapple with those, those kind of big issues, but also that sense of God speaking prophetically into our lives. And again, not, not in a way that we label things and therefore kind of make them more than they are, but that's just that sense of God speaking in the here and now about the things that matter to us, which may not be great moral issues, but they matter to us and they're important in our lives. And so we shouldn't forget that in all of this, we look to the Spirit to help us and to, to enable us to, to hear from God. And then finally, ethics is worked out in community. We learn together to live together. We learn together to live together. And that means that we won't always agree on issues. And that's fine. That's absolutely fine, isn't it? That's the nature of community. But we learn together to live together. So it seems to me that those are some principles that, that we need to kind of try and hold on to that might help us and, and shape the way that we 
that we live our lives and the way that we think, perhaps particularly about some of those, those bigger issues in life. But what about that, that other end of the spectrum? That, that right-hand side, the very personal, the immediate end of the spectrum. And I'm, I'm conscious that we've talked a lot so far in this series about principles and concepts, ideas, theology. All of that stuff's important, and I could talk all day about that stuff because I love it. But we do need to make sure that we don't turn the reading of the Bible into an intellectual exercise that only a few of us can engage in. Because the Bible is a treasure trove, and it's, it's a means by which God can speak to us through the Holy Spirit, the Bible can become for us in a moment, in a particular context, a word from God for us. And we shouldn't forget that, and we shouldn't neglect that. It's important that we, we have that sense too. You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org.